Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. Embrace the challenge of increasing humility. I just need to be increasingly humble. That's how I start the Christian life. I count it all loss, Philippians 3. Whatever was counted to my credit, I'm saying no, I cash it in that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes by faith. Welcome to Focal Point. Well, I think you'd agree that following Christ offers invaluable rewards. But if your goal is to be popular, then Christianity may not be for you. Sound surprising? Today, Pastor Mike Fabares explains why embracing Christ is incompatible with gaining the approval of men. It's a common challenge of the Christian life and one that Saul experienced shortly after his conversion as he faced the angry backlash from his former friends. Now here's Pastor Mike with the conclusion of a message titled, Saul, New Challenges. I remember my best friend in high school. I go off to college, I become a Christian. I come back, spend the first summer there with my friend. He's, you know, just a typical dude from high school I hung out with. And I remember sitting across from him and sharing as I sat in the front seat of my, my Volkswagen. And I, I remember talking about the importance of what had happened in my life and that I'd become this follower of Christ and how important it was and that he needed to. And I remember his response to all that was just so dismissive, right? Something now that had become so central in my heart and my life now to him was like, matter of fact, I remember, I've quoted this before, it's been years, I suppose, but uh, Neil says to me, uh, you know, surfing, he was a surfer, surfing is my church. The, the wave is my God. That's just kind of how it tells you the quality of the friends I was hanging out with, I suppose. But I mean, to him, it was like, you're not going to make this God of the Bible and this Jesus of history be the God that supplants. I mean, I, I, think, I think what you're doing is dumb. Now, that, that created a conflict. I become a Christian, and I proclaim Christ in the front seat of my blue Volkswagen, and I tell my friend, listen, you need to see Christ for who he is. I was wrong when you and I were friends in high school about my view of God. Now I'm telling you what's right, and, and that instantly caused this problem between us. And so it is for Paul, right? He proclaims Christ in the synagogues. And it ends with the transitional verse there in verse 23 is they want to kill him. Talk about conflict. Yeah, there's going to be conflict. Number two, that's the second thing you need to do. You need to embrace the challenge of more conflict because the Christian life is going to be filled with more conflict. That's just going to happen. Let me show you four different categories real quickly of the conflict you're going to have. Let me label these. Four categories, A, B, C, and D. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4 to identify the first one. It's very simple. Let's just label this one. Then we'll look at the passage. Theological conflict. Verse 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit. We're not talking about Ouija board, woo, spirit here. I can prove that to you by looking at verse 6. Last sentence in verse 6, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Is there demonic and angelic stuff behind it? Well, sure, but that's not the point. The point here is there's a corpus of teaching about God, and people are saying those things, and some of them are not true. Don't believe every spirit, every every lecture, every philosophy, every theological statement, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Shouldn't believe what everybody says. Can't say your truth, my truth, whatever you want to believe, that's fine. Why? Well, you need to know, first of all, many false prophets have gone out into the world. They're saying all kinds of things that are wrong. They're false. That's a value statement. That's a truth claim that we're saying this truth is incompatible with that truth. The Jews said he's a false Messiah. We're saying he's the real Messiah. 
Paul was saying, Saul of Tarsus was saying, Jesus is dead. I don't know, his body is, is somewhere. And, and now he has to say, no, Jesus is alive. And so he's changed his, his view here about what is true. Paul had been calling Jesus, I don't know, a lunatic or a liar, one or the other, but now he's calling him Lord. That's going to cause theological conflict. Go to the next chapter, chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5. Drop down to verse 9. Look at 9 through 10, 9 and 10. Here's the second level. That was letter A. If we receive the testimony of men, if, if you're that dumb, right, the testimony of God is greater. Don't listen to the crowd. Don't listen to the world. We've got to listen to God. God has spoken. For this is the testimony of God. He is born concerning his son. This is what the whole letter has been about. This is what John's gospel was about. We have the truth about Christ. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. You bought it. You believe it. Your heart now aligns with this truth. Check this out now. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. You're accusing him of being a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Think about that. We've gone from theological conflict to now that something's going to cause social conflict, relational conflict. That's letter B. Because you're calling God a liar. I can't be buddies with you when you're calling my God a liar. I'm willing to evangelize you, but I'm going to be tenacious about who Christ is. And if you want to deny that, then I guess what? I guess we're not going to be golfing buddies. And for Paul, guess what? He lost a lot of friends over saying Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And all I'm telling you is got to be ready for that. If the world saw you as one of its own, Jesus says, then it would love you as its own. But as it is, I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Some of us don't think, well, I don't know if ever something, I get some, get looked over for promotion, I can claim that verse. This ought to be the reality of us saying that's just part and parcel of how this happens. Being a Christian creates theological conflict and social conflict. Letter C, drop down to verse 18 in this passage. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's a different topic, one he talks about throughout the book. But he who was born of God, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. That's a strong way to put it because he's certainly throwing a lot of stuff at us. You read the book of Job. But ultimately, he does not overcome us. He does not have sovereignty over us. Right? We know that we are from God, verse 19, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There is the dichotomy. There is the bifurcation. There's the A and B, and there's no in between. You either are from God, and you are a part of God's family, or you are not, and you are under the power of the evil one. Conversion, according to Ephesians 2, is you no longer being led by the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. I'm no longer a part of the world system. And while the spirit of 1 John 4 was not the spirit, this one is. This is a direct discussion about Satan in the world. The 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan, the God of this world that blinds the eyes of guys like my friend Neil. And that He's a part of that system, and I am no longer a part of that system. And because of that, not only do I have theological conflict and social conflict, I'm really having a battle, not just with my friend Neil, because I don't really ultimately battle against flesh and blood. I battle against spiritual forces of darkness in this world. And therefore, I know this Satan now and demons hate me since my conversion at, at the age 18. And the same goes for you. You've stepped out of a world system. And when you did, much like with that discussion in Job chapter one, Satan not real keen on that. Matter of fact, the more you grow, the more productive you get, as we'll learn later in the book of Acts, when the seven sons of Sceva in that whole weird situation say, yeah, we know about Paul. Why didn't they know about Paul? Because he is a defector. 
He was a part of the world system and Satan was pleased with him persecuting Christian, the Christian Jews. And now he's defected. He's gone AWOL. And they don't like that. The point is you attach yourself to Christ and you align yourself with the testimony of Christ and you say, now God is true. He's not a liar. And now all of a sudden, the father of lies, the murderer, the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, says, I don't like people aligning. So there's a spiritual battle. How does that manifest itself? In a million different ways. And you've got a lot of problems at work and you've got a lot of problems in your health and you've got a lot of problems in a lot of places. Not all of them, but some of them can be traced back to the fact that you are in a spiritual war. And you better put your spiritual armor on every day, Ephesians chapter 6, because you are going to have the fiery darts of the enemy. You didn't have that as a non-Christian. You did not have that as a non-Christian. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. More interdependence on other people, more conflict theologically, socially, and what did I call this one? Spiritual conflict. A lot of spiritual conflict. I have spiritual conflict in my life. Manifested in a ton of different ways, but you and I need to know that we're at war with the cosmic forces of evil in this world. A lot of harassment going on. 2 Timothy chapter 2. There are people held captive to do Satan's will in our environment. Paul warns Timothy, man, you don't be quarrelsome. Call them to repentance. Do it thoughtfully, strategically, carefully, because, man, they're out there, and they're being tools and instruments of the enemy to attack you, Timothy, and your work and your ministry. One more. Let me end with this one. Go back to 1 John chapter 2. It says in verses 15 through 17, do not love the world. Do not love the world. We're not talking about sunsets or beaches or trees or forests or parks or mountains. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a world system. We're going to see it here in the last verse, in verse 17 of this paragraph. It talks about the desires, right? The world is passing away along with its desires. So there's a set of philosophical desires, axioms, principles, virtues, goals, priorities, the things that says, this is how the world works. This is how human beings on the planet should function. And that's the world system. We'll call it philosophy. And you're going to have not only theological conflict, not only social conflict, not only spiritual conflict, but you're going to have, you're going to have philosophical conflict. You're not even going to be able to be comfortable and let your guard down living in the world and watching a commercial. Can't let your guard down. Think about it. The whole world system, from advertising to marketing to the way that people think you should function at work, all of these things are based on some basic motivations. And they're all going to appeal to these three things. If anyone loves the world, love the Father's not in. For all that's in the world, here are the three things. The desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the, the pride of life. Those three things. Right? It's not from the Father. It is from the world. The world is pushing that philosophy. And the world is passing away along with its desires. And no one's going to say those are cool things to live by a thousand years from now. I guarantee it. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we need to be countercultural, and that means there's going to be conflict. Paul's going to live by a different set of principles. Whereas before we learned from his testimony that he retells the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, there were a lot of things that he did that he thought under the guise of religion were good, but they ended up being self-aggrandizing, self-promoting. And he says, listen, that I've counted as rubbish and loss for the sake of gaining Christ. So he's changed his whole philosophy of life. And all the things, false religion, education, career, family, relationships, recreation, entertainment, they're all designed around these things. At some level, they are. The lust of the flesh, the old days we used to call it, if it feels good, do it. Philosophy, right? if it feels good, if it makes me feel good, there's pleasure involved. If it's pleasurable, I'm going to pursue that. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Right? If it looks good, I want that. Whatever that might be. I mean, that's really the ultimate priority. 
Right? The idea is whether it's a, a house or a wife or you know, myself in the mirror, it's all about that's got to look a particular way, the things in the world. And Satan uses that. He used it from the very beginning where Eve said she saw the fruit and it was pleasing to the eye, right? She said, here it was this thing where Satan goes, look at that. Look at it. It looks good. You want it. You should have it. So you've got this idea of it feels good, you should do it. Right? If it looks good, you should have it. Right now, here's the third thing, the pride of life. The pride of life. If it promotes you, well, then you should, you should vote for that. Right? You should do it. You should. If it's going to make you go up, then that's a good thing. And, and so it becomes promotion. And, and the world's always trying to promote you. I mean, even everything about how it tries to sell you widgets, you deserve it. Right? The philosophy of education in the world. Right? It's all about training our kids to respect themselves and love themselves and have good, healthy self-esteem. But it's not about you singing a song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. That's not part of the curriculum, you've noticed. That, that's not how we teach people to think. But Christianity does. Christianity has a whole different philosophy. And we should know this, you're never going to feel at home in this world, ever, if you are a Christian. Paul did no longer did he feel at home. Matter of fact, he said, my citizenship is now in heaven. Not just this little subgroup called the church within the world. Really, I'm, I'm a stranger and alien in the world. I just don't fit in anymore. And that's part of the problem that some of us have because we're moaning and complaining about that or fighting the reality of that. And I'm saying, we've got to just joyfully embrace that. It's okay. We're not going to fit in. Get used to the conflict. Say it's okay. It, the conflict is like the dirty diaper with the baby. It just goes with the package. And one day it'll be done. And we will have a kingdom where none of this is going to happen. No more theological conflict. No more social conflict. No more, what do they call it? Spiritual conflict. And no more philosophical conflict because Christ will reign and so will his philosophy, his law, his truth. All right, that was longer than I wanted it to be. Let's go back to verse 23. As if I had time for this. Verse 23. Many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Their plot became known to Saul. They were watching through the gates day and night in order to kill him, but the disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And I did the simple observation in reading it at the outset of this sermon, how humiliating that must have been. In a trash basket, probably, maybe an oversized laundry basket, but likely a trash basket, a wicker basket used for trash, lowered down the wall by the people he was trying to kill when he came to town, when he was heading to town. And now he's escaping under the cover of darkness like a fugitive. We've gone from you riding in on a horse with authority, with letters from the high priest, with everyone scared of you, to you now looking like you're scared, running under the cover of darkness away from the authorities of the town. How humbling is that? Well, if you know anything about the Christian life, that's all part and parcel of Christian life. You can't even get saved unless you humble yourself. You're certainly not going to grow in the Christian life unless you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. I mean, we've got to get to the reality of saying that's part of the Christian life. And while the world system, as we just kind of dovetailed from the last point, there's no way around the fact we will never fit in with the world because I know one thing, they're always pumping themselves up, self-promotion, self-aggrandizement, get the best, do it for yourself. You go around once in life, grab all the gusto you can. All of that is this. And Christianity is you got to see yourself in perspective. You got to see yourself for who you are. You're so dependent on God. Matter of fact, Lamentations 3, if it weren't for his great mercy you would be consumed. Every day is a gift of God. You hear people say that trite little saying, but it's certainly true. How are you? Better than I deserve. Well, you deserve to be in outer darkness under the threat and weight of all of your sin. And instead, you're not. You're breathing and you're here. And you can go out and have 
barbecue tonight. That, all of that, think about that. Gift of God, who thinks that way? We ought to think that way because that's what the Christian life is all about. And you ought to embrace that challenge. It's a challenge to think humbly about who you are. But you need to do that. Number three, embrace the challenge of increasing humility. I just need to be increasingly humble. That's how I start the Christian life. I count it all loss, Philippians 3. Whatever was counted to my credit, I'm saying, no, I cash it in that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes by faith, that comes from Christ, all of that. That's how I start. Now I start to live the Christian life. And let's just say I start being productive in the Christian life. And people are saying, you're doing a great job. You've got great insight into the scriptures and you're doing good things. You're winning people to Christ. Well, you might be tempted then to not be so humble. And so God will use even things like the messengers of Satan to let the leash out a little bit so that you can say with the apostle Paul, I recognize that all of that was so that I would not become conceited. Therefore, I'm going to be glad. I'll most gladly boast of my weaknesses and calamity and difficulty and distress. I'm fine with that because I know one thing. What's really important is that I learn to hate the things that God hates, and God hates, hates pride. God is opposed to the proud. Matter of fact, jot this one down. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. 16 and 17, but 16 starts it this way. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. If I was going to say, make me a list of seven things you really hate. I mean, really hate. I'm not talking about food. Just think about things you really despise, right? Think about that. If God were going to make a list like that, and he did, and we know it, it's found in Proverbs chapter 6, there are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven that are an abomination to him. What would be at the top of his list? I just wonder, and you already know, because where this whole question is framed in the sermon. But you know how it's put? It's not even put in some egregious way. Someone who is so reeking of his pride, he says this, haughty eyes, haughty eyes. When you start reflecting, even in your disposition, in the visage on the front side of your melon, you start showing like you're better than the next guy, like you deserve it, like you earned it. I hate that. That is an abomination to me. I'll bet it's also an abomination to the archangels, to the cherubim, to the seraphim. Would you think that they maybe are a little bit miffed at you when you go through the whole day without ever saying thank you one time for the things that God has given you? When you're not really sitting there thinking, were it not for God's mercy, I would be consumed. When the seraphim are flying around, as we saw last week in Isaiah 6, covering their faces, not even willing to look at the manifestation of God's glory in that vision that Isaiah had. Just, I just wonder what they think when you walk around with a little bit of haughtiness on your face, like you're better than, like you're all that, like you deserve a few good things in life. And if you want to test that theory, just let a few bad things happen in your life. And let me ask you, do you ever have the temptation to say, why me, God? Why did you let this happen? I really quote the question to be, why didn't this happen sooner to me? <laughs> really? Because I know who I am. I mean, a sinner saved by God's grace through the death of Christ on a cross. I want you to think about that, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Who can really say that? A person who says that has started to have a, a perspective that's right because the seraphim, cherubim, and archangels aren't looking down at you when you think you've done a good job in your education and your job and you lean back in your desk at work and go, man, I've really done it. They're not going, yeah, man, get it. They're going, who do you think you are? And Paul, who was so humble as God continued to do things in his life to remind him who he was, he could say this to the Corinthians in a very wealthy place. He can say, what do you have that you did not receive? 
And if you received it, if it was given to you, if it's all a gift of God, if it's God's grace, even you being alive and having whatever you have, why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? Why do you act like you earned it? We didn't earn our Christianity. We don't earn anything else in our lives. I mean, God is gracious to us to let us still live on his planet and breathe his air and eat his food. That's a humble perspective. You're never going to get applauded by your friends at work for that perspective on life. And yet that's what God is going to continually do through the circumstances, problems, the illnesses, the sicknesses, the, the economic problems. He's going to lead you to continue to say, by God's grace, I'm a part of his family. Just think for a second about that perspective. Because guess what the angels understand? They understand who they are. And they're a whole lot more all that than you are. I don't want to offend them, let alone the God who gave me it all. So I want to say, you know what? Humility is not a popular thing. Conflict's not something I want. Interdependence is not something I'm super comfortable with. But all of that is part of what God asks me to do. To be a part of this thing that forgives my sin, that puts me in right relationship with my creator, that secures heaven for me, that lets me know the truth, that frees my conscience. Man, if that's what you want, it's worth it. You've heard the nutritionist or the coach or the trainer say, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. You've heard that, right? Nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. When you're dying to have a bowl of ice cream, well, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. So this will be worth it, right? That's what they're trying to do in giving you that line. And, and, and a good friend or whoever might say that kind of pithy thing is, is trying to remind you it is worth it, right? This is so much better to have the thing even though you go through the pain of not getting what you want. I don't want conflict. I really don't on many levels want interdependence and I really don't care for humility because I'd rather be following the pattern of the world, putting myself on a pedestal and wanting the world to rotate around me, but I'm ready to give all that up because nothing is as good as being a part of God's family. Nothing's as good as being forgiven. Nothing is good as having heaven secured. So let's gladly embrace the challenge of those things. You're listening to Focal Point and the conclusion of a message titled, Saul, New Challenges. And don't forget, you can listen to this program or any of our previous messages anytime when you go to focalpointradio.org. Well, the story of Saul is just one of the many real-life stories of transformation in the Bible. The scriptures are filled with ordinary people, like Saul, whose lives were totally changed by an encounter with God. So this month, to go along with our series called Amazing Conversions, Pastor Mike has selected a helpful resource that highlights some of these stories of transformation. It's A.W. Tozer's outstanding book called Men Who Met God, 12 Life-Changing Encounters. And it's our special gift to you when you make a generous financial contribution to support Focal Point this month. We're here to provide you with encouragement, guidance, and solid biblical teaching on the air and online anytime. Our program is widely available and fully funded by listeners just like you who want to hear God's unfiltered, uncensored word. And we're grateful for the support we receive, especially the faithful monthly support of our Focal Point partners. When you make a monthly gift, you provide the financial stability we need to share these gospel messages with more and more people. So please become a Focal Point partner today. 
It's easy to set up your monthly donation or make a one-time gift when you click the Give button in the Focal Point app or online at focalpointradio.org. You can also give us a call at 888-320-5885. We'd love to hear from you. Or if you prefer, write to us at Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. And if you're not ready to give just yet, we'd still love to hear from you. When you get in touch, we'll send you a helpful pamphlet about the 12 disciples, 12 regular men whose lives were changed when they accepted the invitation to follow Jesus. Find out more when you call 888-320-5885 or contact us online at focalpointradio.org. Well, that's all for today. I'm your host, Dave Drewy. Hoping you'll come back again tomorrow for the next message in our series called Saul, A New Family. Make plans to join us Wednesday right here on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. Ever wish you could corner your pastor and challenge him with your toughest questions about the Bible, about faith? Well, now you can. Send me your questions. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click on Ask Pastor Mike. Or send me a note on facebook.com slash pastormike or twitter.com slash pastormike. I can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.